Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, a late November Peter King Podcast with my good friend Miles Simmons from NBC Sports. We're going to be joined later on in the podcast. And look, I understand I'm a little bit of a words nerd um, and I like writers. So this week we're going to be joined by a two-time Pulitzer winner who now writes for the New York Times. His name is Eli Saslow. And Eli is someone who I greatly, greatly admire. And he wrote a great story in the New York Times this past Sunday that we're going to discuss later on when I uh, when we have Eli on the podcast. So anyway, a little bit of a different pod this week. But I wanted you to be able to hear the words of a great American writer today. So Eli Saslow on the pod a little bit later. Miles, so much to discuss. The three biggest things that we're going to discuss here in the first part of the podcast is number one, David Tepper is driving a clown car. That's number one. Number two, If anybody here is interested in trashing Josh Allen, I got a problem with you, and I got a big problem. And then number three, how about the Philadelphia Eagles? They've got a, they are two games clear of everybody in the NFL right now. They're two games ahead of every team in the loss column. So we're going to discuss the Eagles and why they are, and then, In the second half of the pod, when we talk NFL, I've got a couple of things I want to touch on with Miles. And I think one of the really interesting things that happens in the course of an NFL season is some narrative starts to build that I'm not really sure is a good narrative. Okay, And there's two of those now. One of them is that, oh, the Kansas City Chiefs are in huge trouble. They can't score in the second half. I got a problem with that, first of all. And number two, I'm not saying I have a problem with what Tom Brady said, because I believe that Brady spoke the truth in so many ways when he kind of dogged the current state of the NFL. But my feeling about that is, and Miles and I will get into it a little later, my feeling about that is, well, first of all, Tom, you were just playing a year ago. You know, I mean, anyway, so and maybe you thought it was horrible then too. I don't know. But the other thing is, 
All these quarterbacks are hurt now. So, of course, things are going to look bad right now. So, anyway, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. Miles, I want to start with David Tepper firing Frank Reich as his head coach. Um, And the way I put this is that (laughs) David Tepper, in the last 48 months, since December of 2019, that's 48 months, in the last 48 months, he has had three permanent head coaches and now three interim coaches with the Carolina Panthers. But my favorite part of the story is David Tepper also owns the MLS team in Charlotte. And that team has been alive for two years. So what has David Tepper done? He's fired two head coaches. So I guess what I'm saying is we have a George Steinbrenner in in the modern NFL. But the only difference is George Steinbrenner won. David Tepper is 30 and 63 in his ownership. Your thoughts about the firing of Frank Reich 11 games into the first year of a five-year contract? Well, first of all, Peter, I feel like it's appropriate that you brought up George Steinbrenner after you went through what was kind of a Festivus intro with all the people that you have a lot of problems with. And I understand (laughs) why. You know, you've got one with David Tepper and the way that he's kind of conducted business with the Carolina Panthers here. Look, I understand from a lot of different standpoints why he fired Ron Rivera when he fired Ron Rivera. I mean, that to me made a lot of sense. The tenure... I think had run its course with him, with Carolina, much like it probably has run its course with Washington, but that's not what we're talking about right now. And then also last year, when you fire Matt Rule, that made sense too. And I guess you know the, the hiring of Matt Rule is something that I think you probably should have looked more into if you are David Tepper. And why did you go through that particular process? You know, you hired somebody who was coming out of college. Yes, he did have the one year of experience with Uh, the New York football giants there as an assistant, but his approach as a head coach in the NFL was not going to work because he liked to major in the minor and all of these minute details that really don't matter when you're a professional, he focused too much in on that. And I think we saw the kind of effect that it could have by lifting him out of the organization when Steve Wilkes came in last year and he went six and six as the interim coach and did a damn good job. I thought of keeping that team competitive with players he did not pick and with coaches he did not pick. And so when yeah. you go into this off season and you say, all right, well, even though Wilkes did that and ostensibly I thought earned the right to become the full-time head coach with the Panthers, especially because He's got a lot of history with the Charlotte area, a lot of history with the Panthers organization. Instead, they decide to go with Frank Reich. And I don't think Frank Reich is a bad coach. I really don't. I I think that in some ways he got a raw deal with the Panthers, but I think in other ways we saw that it was not working. However, it's also difficult to make things work when you only have an 11-game tenure. I thought that the Tepper would at least go through the entire regular season and see if there was something that they could salvage over these last five, six games, however many yeah. the Panthers have left. Right. That to me was going to be the indication of, okay, if, if they got through the season and they only won one game, I would get it. You admit that you make a mistake. 
and you say, look, we still believe in the quarterback. We've got to get somebody who we feel is better for the quarterback. But to pull the plug after that loss to Tennessee, and I was reading Joe Person of The Athletic, who's covered the Panthers for many, many years, and he said in his article about that game and uh, David Tepper's four-letter outburst after he left the locker room after the game, that basically it felt like a matter of when and not if Tepper would move on from Reich as head coach. But I just, I don't know, Peter, I, I feel like when you have a, a coach that you've hired and you've done all this and you've brought in all these assistants and you've tried to set up something that's really, really good for the young QB, why not give it a year if you're going to be paying out the contract anyway? I mean, what difference does it make if you fired Frank Reich on Monday this week and a Monday after the end of the regular season, I don't know. I mean, I guess like you can sort of get a head start on your research. But how much different is your research going to be than it was a freaking year ago when you kind of went through the same process? So you said it's a clown car. I, yeah, I mean, that, what are the arguments to make that it is not? What clown car? And I guess the one would be from David Tepper at his press conference earlier on Tuesday. We're like, yeah, hey, well, look at all the business things that we've done. Things are so much better behind the scenes. We brought concerts to the stadium and all this. The results on the field aren't there. And I think this is not a great situation to come into for any coach, especially given that even if you earn the number one overall pick, that thing is being shipped to Chicago as part of the trade that you made last year to get Bryce Young. You know, uh, Miles, one of the things about this that I've really started to think more than I ever have before is if you have the first pick in the draft and your and your team stinks, more and more and more, like I'm starting to think this about the Chicago Bears. I understand everybody wants to, you know, everybody wants to get excited about the next shiny object. Let's take a quarterback and let's do this. But my whole question is, what leads you to think it's going to be any different with Caleb Williams than it was with Justin Fields? You might be able to give me some great analytics, you know, expected points added stat or, you know, how great he is at explosive plays. I mean, just stop with that for a second. When you have a team that stinks, and I'm telling you right now, you know, Bryce Young is getting no sympathy from anybody. But you know what? He gets a lot from me, and I'll tell you why. Because Bryce Young has been treated like, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's be honest. He's been treated like a punching bag this year. It's the same thing that happened to Daniel Jones with the Giants. His line stunk. Bryce Young's line stunk and Bryce Young got beat up and they expected him as a rookie in the NFL to come in when he just played at Alabama, where they took care of the offensive line and they protected the quarterback. And with the Carolina Panthers, they did no such thing. So, so anyway, that's, that's one part of it, but I'll just say one thing about Tepper. It amazes me that this man for nine years before he took the ownership of the Panthers, for nine years, he was a minority owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He saw how the Roonies did business. He saw that even when they didn't have a great year, they didn't throw Mike Tomlin out the door. And 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 so, you know, he saw all that. 
And yet he looks at a team in the city that he bought into the team. And he looks at that team and says, hmm, they've had three permanent head coaches in 54 years. We've had three permanent head coaches in the last four years. Mm-hmm. What is wrong with this picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with the pic- this picture. What's wrong is that he needs to understand the way that people do business in the NFL, which is you have the patience to not do stupid things like David Tepper is doing. Okay, if you don't like Frank Reich, don't hire him. But if you hire Frank Reich, don't give him 10 months. That's insane. That's stupid. And it's just, it's got to stop. And if he doesn't stop it, he deserves the rancor of the press corps in Carolina, in Charlotte. Nobody would ever call the the Charlotte press corps Philadelphia. Okay, and I'm not, look, I'm not dissing anybody, but I'm just saying it's not known as Philadelphia, you know, the tough, hard-bitten press corps, all right? And for him to ignore a question from the columnist of the Charlotte Observer, uh, to not call on Scott Fowler, who is easily the most recognizable, well-known guy in Carolina, because you don't know, you don't like what he writes, David Tepper you deserve all of the crap that is going to fall down on your head. That's all I can say. You don't understand what it's what it takes to be an owner in the NFL, which is insane because you had your tutelage for nine years with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Anyway, let's move on after I've gotten that out of my system. No, I thought that, hey, Peter, I thought that was great, man. No, you don't usually go on rants like that, but when you do, that's when we know that it's a serious thing. Can I, can I say this about the Panthers? Yeah. I mean, one, I would say that the thing that's interesting to me about you know former Steelers minority owners that then go on to become owners of their own teams is Jimmy Haslam yeah, was also yeah. a minority yeah. owner with the Steelers, and the Browns <laughs> were, frankly, a clown car for many years under his ownership and now under the leadership of Andrew Barry as GM and Kevin Stefanski as head coach that has stopped so all hope is not lost for you Carolina Panthers fans out there at least not yet it still may take another couple of years but I think when it comes to the Panthers then their roster a lot of what they remind me of right now is the 2016 Rams after they had drafted Jared Goff number one overall the Rams had defensive talent, right? You had an Aaron Donald. You still had a Robert Quinn, a Michael Brockers. Those guys were up front, had some talent in the secondary, Tremaine Johnson back then. So you can see some of these parallels, at least I do, with what they've got going on with the number one overall pick who's a QB, who really just does not have any semblance of talent and help around him. And you've got some talent on the defensive end. Things can get better very, very fast If David Tepper gets this next head coach right, is David Tepper going to get this next head coach right? I certainly do not know, but that's all I'm saying. You know, you look for the 2016 to the 2017 Rams and how much different they looked once they got in Sean McVay. And once he was coaching up the offense and he was coaching up Jared Goff, something similar could happen with the Carolina Panthers next year. And I guess that's very, very Pollyanna and rose colored glasses, but Things can change quickly in the NFL, and it's not always as bad as what it seems. But again, David Tepper has got to get this next hire right, and he's got to let that person do their job. 
Yeah. I'll just end with this. The Carolina Panthers have traded their first round pick next year, which will likely or possibly, I should say, be the first overall pick. (laughs) So that's a disaster in and of itself. But there's no team in the NFL that needs a massive overhaul the way the Panthers do. And here's what they have in the first two days of the draft, rounds one, two, and three. Here's what they have to do their massive overhaul as of today. Overhaul. As of today, they have the 33rd pick and they have the 65th pick. That's it. No picks in the top 30. And so the only way, in my opinion, that they can do a massive overhaul is think about trading some of their cornerstone guys who they know, if they're not going to be any good till 25 or 26, they know that maybe they can get more for them now with younger players in this year's draft. I don't know what they're going to do, but enough of them. I think until David Tepper basically takes himself out of this equation and realizes that he needs to just go where the dunce cap sit in the corner and whether he hands the authority to Scott Fitter or to someone else, just get out of there. You are ruining this franchise. Okay, next. Let's go to Josh Allen for five five sentences. I just got so, I don't know, angry. Uh, to, I was walking the dog, listening to a lot of stuff. ESPN radio, NFL, Sirius XM NFL radio on my headset. I was walking the dog on Monday and listening to various and sundry people saying that, well, what do you expect from Josh Allen? Throwing a, a fourth quarter interception and 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 all that. I mean, what what do you what do you you know at a crucial time? What do you expect, ladies and gentlemen? Josh Allen played one of the best games of his career on Sunday in Philadelphia, and actually, since Ken Dorsey got fired, the Buffalo Bills quarterback by Josh Allen are averaging per game 33 points and 449 yards per game. So uh, let's, let's, let's calm down about this, you know, this trashing of Josh Allen or saying, see, you know, he's always going to throw a big pick at a bad time and all that. I thought Josh Allen was brilliant in Philadelphia and look, sometimes you throw a pick, but, you know, let's also talk about, you know, the the touchdowns he scored, the, the, the 34 points he put on the board. I think maybe it's because, you know, I'm in my old age now and I, I basically don't see things way on one side and way on the other necessarily. I, I see things more in the middle. And Josh Allen does have a turnover issue. We all know that. But after a guy plays the way he played in this game on Sunday, to be critical of him, I think is just crazy. But I don't know. That's just my opinion. I, we haven't even talked about it. What do you think? Well, I, I think that if you're looking at what Josh Allen did on <laughs> Sunday against Philadelphia, he's not the reason that they lost that game, right? I mean, at a certain point, 
the defense, which is now coordinated by the head coach, has got to make a stop. Whether yep. that's at the end of regulation and, oh, my gosh, that kick by Elliott was freaking unbelievable. Unbelievable. Nine yards in the wind and the rain. I couldn't believe he made that kick in those yep. conditions. But, you know, I, I, when I looked at that game, Peter, and I'm watching it, and you got 20 seconds and a timeout left, right? And you're the Bills, and you live through 13 seconds. Now, again, it's not as much of an urgent situation in some ways because it's not one and done like it is in the playoffs, right? The, the sun's still coming up tomorrow for the Buffalo Bills, even though they're on their bye week this week. And as I have heard, it is really snowing in Buffalo right now. But the thing is, when you have a quarterback who is as playing as well as Josh Allen is, and there's 20 seconds, and you know that he's got I agree. a rocket arm, Agree. Why not let him try? You yeah. know, let's see if we can get this thing down the field. Gabe Davis is playing another one of these games of his life like he did in the 13 seconds game. Why not see? You still have Stefan Diggs, who, in my opinion, remains one of the top five receivers in the National Football League. Let him try. You know, so that's part of the problem that I have. And then some of the issues that they've had with these defensive calls that have gone, you know, in ways that you don't need them to because of the way that offenses play that defense. I don't know, man. Like that to me is the bigger issue than what Josh Allen yeah. did. When you're playing a great team like the Eagles, you might turn the ball over. It's okay. Allen, I thought, responded very well. He got back up and he limited those things. So Josh Allen was not the problem on Sunday. <clears throat> All right, the Philadelphia Eagles are 10 and 1. They are two games up in the loss column on every contender in the NFL. It's a bunch of teams with three losses. I find it surprising that 11 games into the season, 12 for some, that the Philadelphia Eagles are two games better than anybody. Um that's I talked to Jason Kelsey Sunday night. That's the thing that really surprises him, that nobody else is up there with them. But I think one of the things I noticed about the Eagles that is very, very admirable is that they can play really mediocre football for 30, 35 minutes, whatever it is. And then I'm not even saying wake up because I don't think it's about waking up, but 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 here's the deal. For the first 35 minutes of this game, they had the ball seven times. I'm not counting the kneel down at the end of the first half. They had the ball seven times. And they scored one touchdown. And they just, they were doing nothing. They had one drive, you know, at that point of over like 15 yards. And so I think there was a lot of concern with the Eagles, but... Kelsey was very much, <clears throat> we played lousy, but we still knew what we could do in this game against this team. And that's why, to me, you know, Miles, when you look at the Eagles right now, what's so interesting is that they are in this incredibly difficult time in their schedule, you know, that we've discussed. But think about it. You know, they have had a, a really, really tough Miami, Let, let's talk about their, their run in the last five games. Miami at Washington, and people would laugh at that, but for some reason, Washington has played great against the Eagles. It's almost an even score over the last two years. So anyway, 
Uh, Miami at Washington, Dallas at Kansas City and Buffalo at home. And now they still got San Francisco at home this week and then at Dallas. And the first five games of that run, they're 5-0. and And I just think this has so much to do with what Bill Parcells used to talk about all the time. Hey, Bill, in the 80s, why are you guys so good even though you might look at the talent position by position and you fall short of the 49ers or the Bears or or even Washington? And he said, <coughs> I, he said I think what it is is we play such a tough schedule and we are up against the toughest teams in the league almost every week. So I think we build calluses Mm -hmm. and we get tougher as the season goes on. And I think that's one of the things that Philadelphia has done. They're never out of any game. They don't think any game is over. Jalen Hurts has been in a thousand of these games at Alabama mostly and then at Oklahoma. I don't know. I think he was a really, really good guy to take the reins of this team when he did. I I don't know if that's the same thing you see. It's interesting because I think I, I, I look at um, what Pete Carroll sometimes says when we see celebrations in the locker room and it's like, can you win a game in the first quarter? No. Second quarter? No. Third quarter? No. Fourth quarter? Yes. And sometimes it takes overtime. But that's the kind of team that the Eagles are. And it's not just the calluses built up from this season. It's also last season when yeah. they started to emerge and people were like, oh, that team's really, really good. And then they just kept winning and winning and winning. And they took it all the way to the Super Bowl. And now they understand that they're going to get everybody's best shot every single week. Right. And so when you know that and you have to deal with the in-game adversity as they have, then you understand like, okay, we just need to focus on the next play and make a play. And once we make a play, then we can make another play and then another play. And so it, nothing ever seems too big for them. Nothing ever seems too out of control for them. And that's why they continue to win. And so when you have that kind of experience and you have the veterans like a Kelsey, like a Fletcher Cox, a Brandon Graham, Elaine Johnson that are in the locker room and that, have taught these younger players what it takes. Like that's why all of this comes together so well. So I, I mean, I don't know if the 49ers are going to be able to beat Philly this week. I'm sure is as hell going to enjoy watching the game, but you know, it, it, I don't necessarily go into any week thinking, Oh, well, uh, yeah, the Eagles are going to lose. I mean, I, I mean, why would you think that at this point, they've just shown yeah. you uh, their ability to win in every single, you know, the ama- Hey, miles, the amazing thing is the 49ers are three-point favorites as we record this on yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, which to me, I mean, somebody please explain that. And I, I look, 49ers might win by 20. I don't know. Right. But it's just weird that they're favored by the best team over the best team in football at the best team's place. Maybe it has something to do with rest. I don't know, but mm. that's weird. Miles, let's let's um Let's take a little pause here. We're going to come back and I'm going to give you what gets my goat a little bit about the analysis of Kansas City. And um, we'll also talk a little bit about Tom Brady's comments about his dissatisfaction with football right now. This is the Peter King podcast. Miles, Miles Simmons and I will be right back. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? 
Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we're back in the podcast, and Miles Simmons... Um, I'm going to let you start off with this. I I sort of had a problem with Kansas City winning games unimpressively and not dominating and people thinking that kind of the sky was falling on their offense, at, which wasn't what it was the last couple of years, but I just view it, you know, you know, in Pat, we trust because I just think he'll figure it out. He will look if, if Sky Moore is not going to get it done. Okay. We're going to Rasheed Rice. I think they'll figure it out. But how do you see the sort of the, how the chiefs have gone through this year and where they are right now? Well, I don't think that it's the sky is falling and I don't really think Patrick (laughs) Mahomes needs to figure it out either. I think that these receivers need to figure it out and the coaching staff and Andy Reid, Matt Nagy, those guys need to figure out what guys can actually be relied upon in the crunch time situations. Obvious, obviously it's not Marquez Valdez Scantling, right? I mean, that's just something we know. And Jarek McKinnon dealing with a groin injury certainly doesn't help that offense either. But I think by now we know Isaiah Pacheco, if you need a yard, he's going to get you that yard by and large yeah. most of the time because he runs like he's angry at the ground. Travis Kelsey, <laughs> he does when they need to be made, right? Yeah. And so I think that Rice in the game that he had Sunday against Las Vegas, maybe that's something that really can propel him into that good role for the rest of the season and into January. They, they need that guy that can actually be reliable. You know, that can be where he needs to be. That can catch the ball when he's supposed to catch the ball. You know, Watson is also one of those guys that uh, that Patrick Mahomes seems to have a good amount of trust in. And a lot of times he has made the plays, but also he's made drops too. So that's where I'm thinking, especially in that Eagles game where we saw the passes were accurate. The passes got there. It's just they weren't catching it. So can those guys really continue to catch the ball as Rice did on Sunday. And yeah, he had a drop too, but he made enough plays that he got over a hundred yards receiving. That's the kind of stuff I think they need. Yeah. I think one of the things about Kansas city over the time, basically that Mahomes has been running the show with Andy Reid, is I just have this, I don't even want to call it blind faith. That sounds silly, but I think they have this great ability to figure out where they stink mm-hmm. and then three weeks later to not stink anymore. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll give you, here's my example. Here's my example. So I cover their game in uh, Frankfurt. They play Miami. They scored two offensive touchdowns. So they scored 14 points on offense. 
This is a week after losing and scoring nine points on offense against Denver. So now they've scored 23 points in eight quarters. I mean, Kansas City has scored 21 points and a, 23 points and a half probably 15 times with Mahomes and Reed. But my whole thought was I flew home from Germany and I thought of what, what can I write about uh, about Kansas City going forward that could be remotely insightful. And then I just thought over and over again, it's common sense. He will figure it out. And I know somebody inside the Kansas City organization who texted me that week and said, man, things aren't good and blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, I, I this is just my gut feeling. Gut feeling, that's all it is. But I've covered football for a long time. When you have a quarterback as good and smart as and determined as Patrick Mahomes, who I believe, I'm not saying he will at all. So, you know, for people who are going to say, oh, he's overrating Mahomes, I, I'm not saying he will. But there's only one player in the NFL right now who's got a chance to challenge the legacy of Tom Brady, and that's Patrick Mahomes. I'm not saying he's going to win seven Super Bowls, I'm not saying he's going to win four. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm saying that there is so much of Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes, so much. And so I just figure, I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know how it'll be, but he's going to figure it out. And when I saw, you know, this past weekend, when they play Vegas and they go behind 14, nothing. And at the end of the game, Rasheed Rice is over a hundred yards and he's got the groove back with Travis Kelsey just said, you know, Patrick Mahomes figures it out. And that's why I never was remotely worried about Kansas City. And and why I was saying to somebody, yeah, this problem scoring late in games, <clears throat> they scored 31 points in the last 37 minutes of this game. So again, look, it's one week. You don't know what's going to happen, but... I just figure that I kind of trust them to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I do too. And it's going to be interesting to see what they do against the Packers this week. And that's a big game. You know, it's, a big game. it's kind of a tough game. It, it, is. it is. Yeah. And we've seen the Packers start to play a lot better over the last couple of weeks. We right. To get those two wins against the Chargers and then the Lions in rapid succession as they did. I mean, I, I think it says a lot about Jordan Love's development and how much more comfortable he's looking. So, you know, it's not Patrick Mahomes versus Jordan Love at the same time. Yes. But this is a really intriguing quarterback matchup to me because those are two guys that are part of offenses that right now are at least appearing to be on the rise based on what they've done over the last week or so. Remaining schedule for Kansas City at Green Bay, Buffalo at home, and then this non-murderer's row of four games to finish the season. At New England, Vegas at home, Cincinnati at home, at the Chargers. So... In my opinion, Kansas City has home field in its hands, and we'll see if they can finish the job. They might not. Jacksonville's got a chance. Baltimore's got a chance. All I can say about Baltimore, week 15 and 16, at Jacksonville, at San Francisco. 
I don't know that they're sweeping those two. But anyway, who knows? It's going to be interesting down the stretch. The last word will come in. I'm going to give you one thought about Tom Brady, and I want to hear your thought. My one thought is, look, Tom Brady's standards are going to be different than everyone else's standards because he's used to playing for perfection. I remember in 2019, his last year in New England, remember they went to Buffalo. They were undefeated. They went to Buffalo and won maybe 16 to 10. I forget. They were lousy on offense. And Brady was ticked off Mm -hmm. because he knew that the offense had problems and everything. And look, you know, it's like, you know, the old cliche or the new cliche, first world problems. That is a first world problem. When you don't play well on offense, but you're still whatever, five and oh, six and oh, I don't know what what they were. And that is what, but that's what Tom Brady's used to. So I don't think what he's saying is dumb, stupid. I, I don't think that at all. It's just his standard is a little bit different from everyone's or everyone else's. What did you think? Well, I think that if he, you know, is so concerned about the state of football, then he needs to get off his rusty dusty and do something about it. How many of these teams don't have real quarterbacks, Tom Brady? Go to the Browns. Show us. Show us what real quarterbacking looks like. Go to the Bengals and show us what real quarterbacking looks like. Maybe the state of the game will be a little bit better. Do something about it, Tom Brady. How hilarious would that be (laughs) if he lined up in – Cleveland Browns Stadium or First Energy, whatever the heck it's called now. Uh, How hilarious would that be? I mean, I would just, I would howl at that. But I don't think we're going to see it, Miles Simmons. But anyway, we will, we shall see. Okay, listen, Uh, that's our take on the NFL this week. Uh, We'll be back again to discuss all things Niffle, which sometimes I call the NFL. NFL niffle. Um, but what you're going to hear from what you're going to hear now is a little bit of journalism talk, a little bit of storytelling talk. And just, uh, I think one of the great writers in America today, Eli Saslow of the New York Times, talking about an incredible story that he has just written. I won't spoil it for you. I'll just spoil it about three minutes from now. But uh, let's go to Eli Saslow and me in a conversation we recorded uh, on Tuesday after the NFL week. Back on the podcast, joined by Eli Saslow, uh, who's a writer for the New York Times. And I wanted to have Eli on because I'm an Eli Saslow fanboy. Uh, I think he is, as I wrote in my column this week, I think he's the best writer of serious things in America today. Uh, He's won two Pulitzers. Um, He's only 41 years old. So we're going to get the pleasure of reading a lot of his stuff in the next few years. And I realize I hardly ever veer away from football uh, in my podcast, but I just wanted to have Eli on to talk a little bit about storytelling, journalism. There's a lot of threats to journalism now. And, you know, in the wake of what I think might be the best story I've ever read from him, and that's saying something because for a long time, I thought the story he wrote at 
the Washington Post about uh, a very, very sad story of a Denver bus driver and what a bus driver in the middle of a city uh, post-COVID has to put up with. It was haunting. And and that story right there actually helped him win uh, one of his two Pulitzers. But this story that he wrote this week was about, um, or actually last week, was about a defendant in the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol who uh, was turned in by his son. And the defendant is going to be going to prison, barring something very surprising. And without any question, it's his son who helped put him there. And the story is just startling and stunning. Whatever your political bend is, I think it's really well worth your time. The story was uh, in the Times on November 19th, uh, and it is headlined, a January 6th defendant pleads his case to the son who turned him in. And um, so, Eli, I'm so glad you could join me on the podcast this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Peter. I've, I've been looking forward to your work every Monday morning for, for years. It's uh, part, of, part of my routine. So it helps, well, it helps you recover from the stories that I write. So thank you. For that. <laughs> thank you. Um, I just, let's talk a little bit about this story. I'm dying to find out where you heard about it and how you convinced this father and son to allow you in their lives to tell the real story. Yeah, I mean, I have this really wonderful um, and privileged journalism job where I, I get to spend a lot of time on the stories that I write. And in addition to just interviewing people and talking to them over the phone, my goal is always to go and spend a lot of time essentially like embedded into the lives of the people that I'm I'm writing about. Um, wh- one of the themes for me often, I think, in my work is polarization, like the United States um is increasingly polarized in almost every way. And, you know, that's, that's politically, that's like our, our wealth inequality is, is growing all the time. Obviously we, we still as a country deal with our, our racial polarization and, and that being part of the issue that we face in the United States always. Um, so I'm looking at how, how we kind of exist increasingly in our own little bubbles in, in our lives. Um, and, and, you know, particularly going into this next year when we're going to have another really contentious presidential election, um, I wanted to find a way to write about how how divided we are, how even two people who basically live in the same place, who see the same things, who care about each other, can view things so dramatically differently. And so I started looking through some of the January 6th cases. Uh, you know, there, there are now 1,200 people who've been charged um, with with the attacks at the Capitol, with, with their role there. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of these people um, are, are, for the most part, normal, you know, normal Americans who, who live pretty ordinary lives um, and, and who, for one reason or another, found themselves uh, either through a place of disinformation or conspiracy theory or, or their own righteous anger, indignation about how their lives were going, found themselves taking part in this, um, you know, historic mess. Uh, so I started reading through all of these case files um, and, and in them, in these 1200 cases, I, I noticed a, a case uh, against somebody named Brian Mock, and the thing that I noticed was that the the key the key witness at his trial had been his son, um, his son AJ, and 
you know, what immediately compelled me about about these two people is that it was very clear that they were really close. A- AJ, who's a 21 year old gay Democrat, lives in downtown Minneapolis, very supportive of like the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, was was vocal after George Floyd's killing and and, and taking part in that. Um, when AJ came out as gay, he said his main source of support was his father. Like his father was the one who always had his back, who was who was always at his side, um, a single father who often took care of AJ by himself. Um, and then over the last few years, because of COVID, because of, of you know, George Floyd, um, because of the economy, these two people had started to go in really different directions. And and to AJ's shock, he had been watching the news on January 6th um, and had seen his father in the crowd. And and his father had, had uh, pushed police officers, attempted to kick police officers, uh, didn't go into the Capitol, but certainly was a part of the riotous activity outside of it. Um, and AJ then uh, had made the really hard choice um, after thinking about it for a long time to turn his father into the FBI. Um, and so the the point at which I arrived in these these people's lives was after the trial, uh, in part because of AJ's testimony, Brian had been found guilty of, of all 11 charges. Um, and he was awaiting sentencing, which meant he'd come home from detention. He had about two or three months home in Wisconsin. And during those two or three months, the main thing Brian wanted to do was continue to plead his case to the one person he cares about the most, his son, the the person that he loves more than anyone else. So, you know, for me, it was an opportunity to hear two people who really want to agree, like Brian and AJ love each other, right? They, they, they have always trusted each other. They care about each other and they want to agree about what's happening in the country. Uh, And so, so hearing those conversations between them made me think, it might it might teach us all something about how all of us can go about talking to people who we disagree with and and even talking to people who are doing things that we believe are abhorrent or even violent um, at a really fractious moment in our country. What I thought was so interesting, and this is the part of your stories that make them so incredibly memorable. I always think what makes a story special is you could refer to the story 10 years down the road and you'll remember at least one thing about the story. You know, I'll always, I will always remember about this story. I will always remember the dad frustrated trying to teach his son to just show him exactly where he was, what he did. And at one point he takes out a pen and paper and he draws a diagram of the Capitol And at one point, you know, during the diagram, and he he evidently also draws this little food truck nearby. And, you know, he basically is is saying that, yeah, and this is where I stopped, you know, that day for lunch. And his son, AJ, says, because, of course, you needed tacos to storm the Capitol. And... You know, his father says, what, you expect me to overthrow the government on an empty stomach? And the reason why your story sings is because that's such a real moment between people. You know, it could be dire, it could be ugly, it could be awful. And it's probably been all of those things over the time, recent points of their lives. But you know, the reality is what the reality is. And this guy's going to prison. So what are you going to do? Sit around all day crying about it? 
Sure. You know, yep. you, you I mean, kind of go it, on with your life and you totally. you make yeah. a joke. You, you, yeah. you try to make a joke. And that, that just I mean, really, really appealed to me. Well, it's it's so meaningful and perceptive of you to point that out because you know the the thing about the thing that attracted me immediately to to AJ and Brian's relationship is that they uh, you know they poke fun at each other all the time, right? They have their own like little language of jokes, practical jokes, teasing each other, um, which is which is very relatable. It's very human, and and it also I think you know at this moment in our country, it's it's easy to think that people who disagree with you are like. Uh, villainous right like like they're um we we tend to like dehumanize people who who disagree with our 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 beliefs our opinions whatever else um right. and, and particularly somebody who is at the capitol on january 6th um the truth is of course that like brian made uh epic mistakes and miscalculations um and and has been found guilty of them um, he also is a father who really loves his son who like would tear up when AJ was playing trombone in his in his you know high school band performances. Uh, somebody who yeah likes to likes to joke with his kid and and I think it's um, sometimes the importance of journalism is to 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 create empathy. Like there's there's a huge lack of empathy in some ways right now. Uh, I think in our in our country um, and and allowing people to be fully human and being able to say you know, being able to approach people, not from a place of judgment, um, but when possible from a place of understanding, which, which is my job as a journalist. I'm, I'm going places not to judge them. I'm coming into their lives and I'm saying, I think this really matters. I think what, what, what happened to you, what's happening to you is important. And, and if I can be here, if I can see it, if I can learn about it, if I can write about it, maybe other people will think it's important too. And, and maybe instead of, you know, reacting to people or situations just from a place of stereotype, like it'll bring more people to a place of nuance where, where they will understand that like, yes, this person did something awful. That does not mean that they are a worthless human being. Eli, where do your ideas come from? You know, I, I think uh, often like I'm trying to think about what are the big pressure points in, in America, which is a big question because there, there are a lot of big pressure points. Um, but, you know, for instance, you mentioned the story on the bus driver, uh, you know, in the last in the last couple of years, I'd say post pandemic, um, the the a lot of American cities have have changed in, in major ways and, and not necessarily for the better. Right. We've had like downtowns have, have emptied out increasingly because of remote work. Uh, a, a historic and awful fentanyl epidemic has has arrived into a lot of these cities. We have like a lot of people in mental health crises um, and, and in ways the country hasn't figured out how to solve. And particularly on the West Coast, a, a really rapidly rising unsheltered homeless population. And so. You know, I will start from a place like that, which is basically a sense that like cities have become kind of a tinderbox. Uh, all the data shows it. Everything else, everything else indicates it. How can I, instead of writing about the data or the trend in a way that might feel important, but but a little bit dry, maybe a little bit boring. How can I write about that story in a way that feels intimate and human and really personal? And and so for me, that'll start with a day or two where I'm I'm looking at looking at the data and saying, oh, it's really things and things in cities have really changed in Denver, in in Seattle, in Portland, in Austin, and and then I'll think, you know, who who is somebody who's in proximity with these problems all the time? Oh. People who drive buses, people who 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 run transportation in cities. That's where a lot of these sort of incidents are escalating. And then I'll I'll you know I'll research the the bus lines in places. I'll I'll ride the bus for a day in Portland where I, where I live. I'll talk to the people who drive the trains in Philadelphia. Um, eventually, after another day or two, I figured out Denver. The Denver buses is the place where I want to do this story. And then 
I'll talk well, to why, why Denver in that case, Denver, because that's where all of all of the incidents like the Denver buses had gone from being a very safe um, and very popular mode of transportation to being considered um, essentially like a, a citywide embarrassment and a train wreck. And the main the main bus station in Denver, which the city had spent a ton of money creating this beautiful downtown bus station had had, you know, there was no no longer public use to the bathrooms because they'd been taken over by by fentanyl. Um, you know, like rising crime rates in, in that area had had become basically the mayor's number one issue. Um, so all these things were pointing to yeah. Denver's a place where this has really changed. And then, you know, I look at the different bus lines and and after researching sort of crime on the different bus lines, I realized Oh, the, the number 15 line that goes up and down Colfax Avenue, um, you know, right past uh, Mile High Stadium or Empower Field, whatever it's called now, that 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 line is where things have really ratcheted up and where drivers are experiencing more assaults, more all of these other things. So then I, I figure out who are the 15 people who drive the number 15 bus. And I I have conversations with six, seven, eight of them. Um, and one of those conversations in, in that case ended up being with Suna, who was a an immigrant to the United States um, who loved Denver, who who uh, for a long time had been such an ambassador for the city that her face was on the side of, of some of the number 15 buses that she drove, sort of welcoming people into Denver. And now what she felt every day when she went to drive the bus was a rising sense of, of despondency and fear. Um, she'd been assaulted eight times in the last year. Uh, like her, Increasingly, she was driving people who had no place to go. And although she felt a huge amount of empathy for the people on her bus, she also was starting to feel afraid of them. Um, and so then once I found the person, once I found Suna, I go and I spend a lot of time, you know, and, and I, I, I ride the, the number 15 for six, seven days. Uh, and I, I, I'm talking to Suna, of course, but I'm also talking to all the people on the bus and I'm, I'm watching, I'm observing, I'm, I'm videoing, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of capturing what the day today is, is like, um, and then, and then writing a story about that, a story that hopefully feels personal, uh, where you really get to know Suna and you get to understand her experiences, but also by understanding Suna and what she's dealing with, you understand something bigger about what's happening in the country at that moment. Um, so, I, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I think it's it's important, Peter, that like journalism, you know, journalism also now is, I think, often really misunderstood. And so I always think it's, um, you know, in the work that I do, I'm asking for a huge amount of trust from the people that I'm writing about, you know, whether that whether that's Brian and AJ uh, and January 6th, or whether that's Suna. I mean, I'm eventually what I'm asking them is I'm saying, hey, uh, is it okay if a stranger comes and essentially lives inside your life for a while and, and then tells everybody about it? You know, I, I'm, I'm not only asking them questions, I'm sitting there with them for hours. I'm going to their doctor's appointments with them. Um, I'm asking them for their text messages, for all of these things that sort of allow a story to, to feel intimate and lived in um, because that's what makes stories powerful. But that's, that is so much to ask of people. And, and as a journalist, ethically, I can't give them anything in return, right? No, nobody that I write about is ever paid for me writing about them. And um, they can't see the story that I've written until it's published. Because if I was to write a story about somebody and then hand it to them sort of to edit, I would be empowering them to be the editor of their own story. And those are never the most fair or honest stories. So right. in instead, all I'm saying to people every time is like, I think this really matters. I, I think you're you're living out a version of a life in this country that more people should know about and more people should understand. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, it's a huge act of, of trust and faith every time for people to, to invite me in. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? 
famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What's your feeling? You saw the Carissa Thompson story a week or so ago. You probably have read about the AI stuff that allegedly uh, the new bosses at Sports Illustrated uh, have used. What's your level of concern, not necessarily for those individual stories, but for journalism as a whole right now? It's high, you know, I, I mean, I think in part because uh, journalism is also seen as controversial in, in ways that that maybe it wasn't before. You know, I think um, over the last decade, I've gone as as a as a journalist at a major American publication, I would say like most people's opinion of me has gone from being neutral to either people think they associate being a journalist with doing like heroic work or they associate it with being an enemy of the people. And, and yeah. neither of those things are, are true. Right. I, I, I like to be conceived of as much more in the neutral, uh, but, but it's um, I think that's, that's not where journalism is at this moment. It's um, and, and that's, that's a dangerous thing. I also think that, you know, those two stories that you mentioned um, any, anything that, that sort of like, uh, anything that we do ourselves as an industry that further gives people reason to question the credibility of journalism is is disastrous because there are enough people out there because of their their own attempts to increase disinformation to to uh you know to sort of um, change the narrative and and falsify the narrative they are already doing whatever they can to sort of discredit journalism so doing it from inside is problematic um you know i i would say the ai stuff the thing that i take heart in is is um you know like Chat GPT for for the for, I don't know if you've used it much, but it's um it's it's phenomenally interesting. And when I recently was like trying to figure out essay questions that my kids should write about the the books that they're reading, going to Chat GPT and suggesting like, hey, what are some essay prompts for this book? That's great. Uh, but what Chat GPT can't do is it can't feel, it, it it can't empathize, it can't it can't understand, it can't relate to another human being and convey that experience. And that's what the best journalism does, right? It, it's, um, we, we, we talk to people about the things that they're going through, the things that they're dealing with. Sports writing, you know, at the very top of the list, this is like, has always been some of the best writing that makes people feel. Um, and I think that's a lot of what journalism has to, has to lean into is, uh, you know, is not just how can we convey information, um, but how can we convey information with, with heart? Uh, that's, that's a really important piece of this work. You know, what you said about the reaction to what it is that you do. And look, I, I spend, I don't know, a 10th of my column every week writing about just things I care about, you know, and, and putting out stories like yours that I think are important to read and that really interested me. And so I often get reactions like 
uh, you know, like I'm on Nicole Wallace or something yeah. that, 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 you know, and I bet I got yesterday, I got 15 to 20 emails from people who sounded like uh, the, that they felt that I was part of this left wing mob that is destroying this country. And of course we had to, to storm the Capitol. Look at what's going on. An election right. was stolen. Right. And I think you're right when you say, because I it, when, when you say that, I think, you know, your concern is high about it because, you know, quite honestly, although I write some things and have opinions on some things, my job, even as a columnist, is to try to take people where they can't go, to tell yeah. them things that they can't know or wouldn't otherwise know. That's yeah. how I view my job. I don't view my job, even if I might say David Tepper is a horrible owner of a franchise. Sure. My job is not to, to say to people, here, let me take you to some place that maybe you don't want to be. Let me do I'm just trying to give you my opinion and educate you about things that I know. Yep. And 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 people in our country right now, the thing that worries me is that you get labeled. You know, I had a friend of mine say, Oh, the New York Times, I haven't read that in years. It's a it's a pile of crap, left wing, blah, blah, blah. I yep. said I said, let me just ask you this. Do you think that when a journalism student at one of the best journalism schools in the country leaves school and interviews for a job at the New York Times and gets a job doing whatever, you think when they cross the threshold into the New York Times building that automatically they are told, okay, if you work here, you can only believe in left-wing causes. And, yeah. you, you know, it's... You know, if you're a journalist, you're looking for facts and yep. you are on the trail of facts. Now, the editorial page, that's another thing. But the 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 other pages of the newspaper are supposed to be about discovering facts. And that is the thing right now that that frustrates me a lot about the way people view journalism. It, it frustrates me, too. And I, and I think it's um, I think the important thing for journalists is con is to continue to sort of uh follow the facts and and rely on the facts um, wherever they lead and whatever their platform is. I mean, the last, you know, first of all, like this story, the January 6th story, uh, I, I think even Brian Mock, who the story is is about, um, would say that it's a very fair story that that is uh, that renders him as as a full person and in, in, in ways that um, that that his his trial or his singular actions on January 6th didn't. Uh, the story that I wrote just before this one was a story about um, the the massive public safety failures in Portland, where I live, where because of of sort of rising fentanyl issues, um, the homelessness crisis, the the public the public safety system here has collapsed. The the yeah. the nine one one wait times are at historic highs. There are not enough ambulances often for emergencies in the city. Um, and so what's what's grown in place of basically a traditional first responder system is a massive private security complex. If you're a coffee shop in downtown Portland, you now have two private security contracts helping keep your business safe. And that is not a story that people who would conceive of themselves as being on the left in America were were happy to read, right? Like the 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 
the Democratic mayor of Portland uh, was very upset with that story and and wanted to meet with me to tell me to tell me why. You know, and and I think it's it's important for for all of us to to figure out like turn turn out turn out the noise and and um, yeah. what are the real what are the real issues? What are the real crises? And then for the most part, to trust our our readers or our listeners to um, hopefully set aside their own biases, whatever they might initially think of the of the New York Times, whatever they might initially think of you and what your politics are, and click on the link, read it, judge judge for yourself, see see if it might defy what you you believe that it was, because I think often it would. And and the last thing I'd say about that is I hope you know you don't you don't get emails necessarily from these people, but I think one of the amazing things about what you built is is you have you have so much credibility with that platform that hopefully, yes, there are 15 people who are gonna who are gonna see that and who are gonna send you that message. But hopefully, because you have built up, you know, so much so much respect and rapport with your audience over a long time, there are also a lot of people who click on that link when they otherwise wouldn't have, right? And 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 maybe what they find surprises them, and and it makes them think differently about January 6th or the country or even the New York Times. Hey, we can dream. Uh, no, no, I think you're right. I do. I, hey, look, I am the luckiest man on the face of in the face of whatever you'd call what it is I do uh, in the giant swarm of media that covers the NFL. I've been hugely lucky and I've loved my job. I've done some incredible things and taken a bus across the country with John Madden and spent a week inside the life of a quarterback and inside the life of an officiating crew. So believe me, the last person who will ever complain about my lot in life is, uh, is me, but I want, yeah. Yeah. And, and those are, those are the stories I think for all of us that we look back on and we, we remember, right. Those ones again, yeah. when you were, you were inside somebody else's experience for, yeah. for a long stretch of time. And it's, um, that's just such a personally rewarding uh, thing to do, right? Like it, not just because the stories are great, but because as a life experience for, for myself, like what I, what I get to take away from riding the number 15 bus uh, in Denver or what you get to take away from riding across the country with Madden, probably, probably a nicer bus, I'm guessing, and probably less violence, <laughs> but there's both of those situations are like, uh, you know, what, what, what an incredible gift. And, and that's yeah. um, the, the joy of being able to sort of be uh have a passport, which journalism can be to sort of say, Hey, can I come along? Can I, can I, can I ask you questions about this thing that otherwise would be a little weird to ask right. me questions about? Can I, can I sit there and be there for this? Um, it's, it's just such a, such a rewarding profession. You know, it's funny. The Madden thing was 33 years ago and it just popped into my head. But the one thing about that story that I will uh, just remember on my deathbed is we're driving in the middle of Nebraska. It's one brilliant, sunny, absolutely lovely fall afternoon, not a cloud in the sky. And Madden looks over on the side of I-80 and he points and he goes, oh my God, what are those? And there was a field of red flowers that was so big, you could not see any green. Wow. And he goes, he told his driver, Willie Yarbrough, he said, Willie, pull over. And uh, so he went and fumbled in, in a drawer and he picked out a book and the book is called Wildflowers Across America. And he goes up and we spent 15, 20 minutes and he's looking through it and he found it. And I forget what the name of it was. I wrote right. it, but I forget what it was. You know, he 
he said, I found it. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, my God. Look, can you believe this? Now you can say that you have seen Flower X. And I yep. said, John, all I know is this. I'm going to tell everyone in the United States that you stopped a bus trip to go to cover the go to do the Giants Cowboys game. You stopped the bus to get off to identify a red flower in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. Yeah, I mean, we had a good, well, we talk, had a good talk about like the yeah. taco truck in the January 6th story. Talk about that one anecdote in that story that everybody's going to remember. And also, like, who is going to like John Madden less because of that? It's so endearing. You know? <laughs> I know, yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, you know, to be able to, to and, and I think it's also like a lesson to all of us. Like, first, uh, the the like unbelievable beauty of this country always is 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 staggering yeah. also to like um to get outside our our own feelings of self-importance our own like uh our own place of, of judgment and to go go see things go go like inner like stop sometimes and and appreciate what's around you um i think especially now when the noise level is so high like i i hope if he were still alive he'd still be pulling that bus over the side of the road yeah well, i think he probably would hey uh you're a big Broncos fan, aren't you? Huge Broncos fan. I mean, it's uh, it's been a joke. I have two brothers, um, and and they often, you know, it, it's been a bleak stretch uh, for, for for us as Broncos fans. But their their frequent joke is that because my my articles usually run on Sunday, so they say they say that uh, between me and the and the Broncos, we've made Sunday the most depressing day of the week. But I think, <laughs> I, I think things have things have, things have turned around. The last, uh, you know. My, my, my wife, they, like my, they, they've seen me suffer so much the last like six or seven years. They think I'm deluding myself, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's been a great run. Um, and, here's and- I'll say, I'll tell you, you know what? I, I was actually thinking about you for a split second on the, on the day that they gave up 70 points oh. in Miami. And I said this, there may be, you wouldn't have thought that there could have been a bigger rock bottom after last year but that was a bigger rock bottom what were you thinking that day i mean you know at first like getting russell wilson and 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 that optimism and the way that ended after the first season then the sean payton hire and after three weeks just feeling like uh what what an unbelievable level of despondency um yeah i look back at some of my text messages to friends after that game in particular and it's uh you know, it's bloody. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I, I think there there are some things for them to figure out, but um, honestly, like one of the things lately that's been uh, just a joy to watch is some of the players who I've been frustrated with for a long time, like, uh, you know, Garrett Bowles has uh, yeah. for, for a while, like led the league in holding penalties or was close um, just several years of frustration with like a talented player. And uh, he, he was phenomenal last week. Um, he's, he's had a really good season. Their offensive lines coming together a little bit. Uh, Russell Wilson is, um, you know, steady. Like he's, uh, you know, his, his touchdown to interceptions ratio is great. Uh, wouldn't say super flashy, but he's, he yeah, also. Wilson said- is not in this offense. Wilson is not going to be either Dan Fouts or he probably isn't even going to be Brock Purdy. Yeah, but this is because if you look back at Breeze, okay, so Breeze was a tremendously productive guy, great numbers, all that stuff. But a lot of games, he was a game manager. He wasn't spectacular. Yeah, and and that's really what Sean Payton needs his quarterback to be. So 
Wilson, and, and I think, is doing the right thing. And the most encouraging thing on that front this week anyway was was Wilson checking plays and, and changing out of plays at the line of scrimmage uh, right. more, than, more than he has as a Bronco by, by far. And often checking into running plays that were hugely successful at the line of scrimmage. I mean, it, it seems like he might be getting to the point where uh, the offense is clicking for him a little bit, um, which is promising. Huge, huge game this week against the Texans. That'll be, uh, I, I won't have a depressing story run this Sunday, just so so the day can be potentially a full win. <laughs> Eli Saslow, thank you so much for taking the time and talking about a lot of the different things with me. And, and uh, you got a big admirer out here of your work. So thank you. My pleasure. Really, really appreciate you and what you do always. Thank you. My thanks to Eli Saslow for uh, a very interesting conversation. And as always, to my partner, Miles Simmons, on the Peter King podcast. So I hope you guys really enjoy the football week. And uh, I don't know about you, and I'm I'm torn right now about whether I'm going to go to San Francisco, Philadelphia. I've written about the Eagles a lot recently. And if they win the game, I don't want to do another Eagles column. But anyway, we'll see. I may go to the game, may not. But any in any case, I will watch every snap of that game. And I'm sure so many of you, too, uh, will do that. But thanks so much for uh, experiencing the podcast this week, either listening, watching on the NBC Sports YouTube channel. Um, I really appreciate you, your support, and everything that you do to make my life wonderful. So thanks all, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Peter King Podcast. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.